Today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring, him, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good to see every single one of you. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray. And Father, now as we have come to gather on this glorious Easter Sunday, we pray that as we heard your word being preached, excuse me, read, and now as we prepare to hear it being preached, that you would instill in us wisdom from above, revelation that is beyond the ability of man to come up with or to imagine. Lord, we pray that you would speak to every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done, we pray that you would speak into our hearts, illuminate our minds, and convict our spirits so that we would come to know you in the manner that is true and that we would find our identity, our purpose, and our destiny through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those among us here who may be investigating Christianity. I pray that you would speak to them as well, as well as to all the saints who have gathered here this afternoon, so that we could all be fed the wonderful word of God, that we could be sustained and strengthened, and that we would once again be assured of your great love through your son, Jesus. We pray that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see all of you, especially those of you who may be visiting us for the first time as a guest. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, a coworker, a sibling, a neighbor, well, let me take this opportunity before I go into my message to welcome you in light of the occasion that brings all of us together by saying to you, Happy Easter, everyone. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Happy Easter, everyone. Thank you. It's good we let the, old, the older kids stay in, right? Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. That's such an interesting phrase, isn't it? Isn't it very enlightening? Especially that first word, happy. That word happy really teaches and informs us how we should be feeling, how we should be receiving this day, this Lord's Day, this Easter Sunday. The Bible teaches us that Easter is the day for us to be jubilant, to be rejoicing, to be happy. This is the Lord's Day, but it is a special Lord's Day because it commemorates the triumphant work of Jesus over sin and over death, over the grave, and over condemnation. This is something that we should be celebrating as followers of Jesus. This is the day to which we should rejoice and be very jubilant of. 
But if you're here investigating Christianity, you might be wondering, well, what's so special about Easter Sunday in comparison to other Sundays? What is it about this Easter day to where Christians all over this globe are extra jubilant, extra joyful, extra happy? Well, the best way to answer that question is to look at the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter in verse 19, because there we see the perfect answer to that question. Let me read it to you so that we can see why we're to be happy. It starts off like this. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his sides, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Here we read the account of the original Easter Sunday. And notice what it says in verse 19 about how the original disciples were feeling at that moment in verse 19. What does it say they were feeling? Fear, right? They were utterly afraid. And why were they so afraid? Because two days prior, they just witnessed their beloved Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, their teacher, be brutally condemned and crucified on the cross by the Roman Empire. All because of the successful conspiracy of the Jewish leaders. The same Jewish leaders which this passage tells us they were terrified of. Hiding behind closed doors. They were utterly afraid. But yet look what happens within that same verse into verse 20. What happens? Jesus appears. The man that they saw die is no longer dead. Somewhere, somehow, this man has come back to life. And what is their response? Joy. Happiness. Jubilee. The... Sunday Easter, Easter Sunday, all centers on this theme of death. Specifically, Jesus is conquering over death, symbolized and exemplified through his resurrection, through his rising again from the dead. And it's for that reason that happiness, joy, jubilation, whatever you want to call it, is forever attached to Easter. And it is for that reason all of you in here should also be joyful, also be jubilant, also happy when it comes to Easter. You see, many of you may not realize this, but all of us in here, in fact, every human being that walks on this earth, we share a common problem that the original disciples had to face this Sunday night. They had to deal with the problem of death, right? This was what caused their fear. And if you're honest with yourself, in your heart of hearts, every fear that you have comes back to this primal fear of death. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how smart you are, how strong you are, how healthy you are, how cautious you are. The problem of death is a problem that everyone has to face. You know, some of us in here have more problems than other people. Others of us have less problems than others. But one problem that is unavoidable, one problem that will come after you sooner or later is the problem of death. Death, according to Scripture, is coming for you. And if that wasn't horrific enough, there's something even worse than that. Death is coming for those to whom you deeply love, those whom you cannot be without, those who you cannot bear to ever be separated from. And the question that I want to ask you this afternoon is, is there something that we can do, or maybe a better way to put it, is there someone that we can look to to deal with this universal problem known as death? I believe there is. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon in light of today's passage that was read. First, I want to talk about the ignorance of death. The ignorance of death. Then I want to talk about the unbearable pain of death. And finally, I'm going to end it with the hope against death. Death, excuse me, the ignorance against. Excuse me, the ignorance of death. 
the unbearable pain of death, and finally, the hope against death. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the ignorance of death. Let's read again verse 13 of our passage where Paul writes these words. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. First thing I want to draw your attention to is that word right in the middle of verse 13, that word known as uninformed. Do you see that word, uninformed, in verse 13? In the original Greek, which is what the New Testament is originally written in, that word is the word agnoin. Agnoin, where we get our word ignorance. Okay? So what Paul essentially saying is, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. That's such an interesting phrase for Paul to say because in our culture today, we say that ignorance is bliss. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Oh, ignorance is bliss. The less I know, the happier that I am. Well, Paul would say that is utter nonsense. That is absolutely wrong. That is not true because according to Paul, there is an ignorance out there that is not blissful, but rather quite the opposite. There is an ignorance out there that can lead you, will lead you to despair, or as he puts it here, lead you to grief. In other words, there is a type of ignorance that causes us so much sorrow, so much confusion, so much a sense of helplessness that it actually hurts. Now, if you're not sure where I'm going with this, let me give you this illustration to help you understand. Imagine for a moment someone you deeply love, right? Someone that you know you just cannot be without. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a sibling. Someone who you just love and who deeply loves you. Let's say that this beloved of yours is seriously sick. Let's say you wake up one morning and this beloved of yours is vomiting blood. He's losing weight. She's losing weight rapidly. Losing control of bodily function without any understanding of what's going on. And in a moment of panic, you take this person to their doctor. And the doctor says, we don't know what's going on. I have no idea what's wrong with this patient. And so you take this person, your beloved, to the doctors in the city, the best doctors of the city. And they tell you the same thing. We have no idea what is wrong with this patient. You take this person then to the best doctors in the country. And again, they say, we have no idea what is wrong with this patient. We don't know what the problem is. And then out of sheer desperation, you take your beloved of yours to the best doctors in this world. And they come back to you with those same haunting words, we don't know. We are utterly ignorant. We don't know why this person has this problem. Let me ask you, in that moment of ignorance, are you going to feel bliss? Are you going to feel happy? Of course not. You're going to be in utter despair. You're going to be in utter grief. Why? Because someone you deeply love is being taken away from you and you have no power, no control whatsoever. When you are in a situation where something you cherish is being taken away and you are utterly helpless, you're utterly confused, and you have no idea what you can do to stop it, you will grieve. You will. And this is the grief that is associated with death because there is an ignorance to death that is the result of no one being able to figure out why there is death in the first place. Listen to what Paul says further on in verse 13. He says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see that phrase, as others? It's actually better translated as the rest of mankind. So what Paul is really saying is, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope because of death. What is Paul saying here by using that phrase? Is he not saying 
that the problem of death is the one problem that no person, no culture, no society has been able to solve. The problem of death has been with mankind since the beginning. And since the beginning until now, no one has been able to diagnose, no one has been able to figure out, no one has been able to solve this problem known as death. This is why, Paul says, the rest of mankind is in grief. This is why they are in despair. This is why they are hopeless. That is what Paul is saying here. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there haven't been attempts to try and solve this problem known as death. Doesn't mean there haven't been attempts by people to try and minimize the grief and the sorrow that is caused by death. If you ever study philosophy, if you ever study religion, if you ever study ancient cultures, classical literature, if you ever study science, you would know there have been many attempts to try and solve this riddle, this problem known as death as a way to overcome the the overwhelming grief and sorrow. And in fact, if you put all of the different quote-unquote solutions to the problem of death, they fall into one of three categories. And I refer to these categories as the following. First, there is the you'll just get over it solution to the problem of death. Then there is the you need to not care so much solution to the problem of death. And finally, there is the you're so selfish solution to the problem of death. Let's quickly go through them. First, the you'll get over it solution to the problem of death. And this is something that's been around for thousands of years because you find its origin in ancient Greek philosophy, specifically in Stoicism, which is a branch of philosophy back in the ancient world. And basically, what Stoicism teaches is that when someone you love dies, when someone passes away and you're suffering grief, Stoicism says, but you need to remember, as painful as it is right now, as as overwhelmed as you are with grief right now, you need to remember, you'll get over it. The human spirit is able to overcome this. So don't let the death of your loved one take you down. Don't let the death of your loved one cause you to not be able to continue on and live life because it can't if you don't let it, right? That's what stoicism teaches. It teaches that death of a loved one, no matter how painful, how traumatic, that the human spirit is capable of enduring and moving on. This is kind of like the proverbial little child who falls down really hard, right? Maybe has a bloody nose and a scraped up knee and the dad quickly runs up, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, don't cry, don't cry, get up, shake it off, shake it off, right? You ever see parents do this? What are they doing? They're trying to psych out their child into ignoring the real pain and damage they're feeling, right? In the hopes that they can just kind of push it out of their mind. They can kind of just be in denial and be like, you know what? Maybe this doesn't affect me that much, right? That's what stoicism does. It tells you to say, just ignore it. Just minimize it. It's not that bad as you think, and you can carry on. This idea is still being perpetuated in our pop culture today. In fact, just a couple years ago, there was a very popular country song. Anyone listen to country here? No? Okay. So you've probably never heard of this song. But there's a popular country song that came out a couple years ago called When I'm Gone. And it's sung by the country duo Joey and Rory. Listen to the lyrics and see how you can pick up the stoic philosophy behind it. It goes like this. A bright sunrise will contradict the heavy fault that weighs you down. In spite of all the funeral song, the birds will make their joyful sounds. You wonder why the earth still moves. You wonder how you'll carry on. But you'll be okay on that first day when I'm gone. Here is this song perpetuating this idea of stoicism that says, Death, it's bad, but it's not that bad. You'll move on, right? 
That's the first solution. It's like, it's not so bad, you'll carry on kind of solution. The second solution that our world throws at us to solve the problem of death is what I call the you need to stop caring so much solution. And basically what this idea says is that one of the ways that you overcome the trauma of death and and, and pain from separation from your loved ones due to death is stop loving that person so much. Try and, and hunker down on your emotions towards them to where you don't care about them as much so that when you actually lose them or think about the loss that you have because of their death, it won't be as painful. It won't be as, as overwhelming with grief. This also was taught by the Stoic philosophers. In fact, one philosopher by the name of Epictetus says this in his book, The Discourses. Listen to what he says. Quote, The principle and highest form of training and one that stands at the very entrance to happiness is that when you become attached to something, let it not be as something which cannot be taken away. When you kiss your child or your brother or your friend, never give way entirely to your affections, nor free reign to your imagination, but curb it, restrain it. What is he saying? If you want the death of a loved one not to sting as bad as it does, try not to care so much about the fact that they're no longer around. Try not to care so much about them. Don't be so intimate and so connected to them emotionally to where when they're finally gone, it won't hurt as bad. This philosophy is something that is taught in our home culture, Eastern philosophy, Asian religions. If you ever study the religion of Buddhism, you know that this is something that Buddhism teaches to where if you want to reach the path of enlightenment, if you want to be truly happy, detach yourself. Don't be so vulnerable. Don't be so in love with your child or your spouse or don't be so committed in loyal love to your parents because when they're gone, it won't hurt as bad, right? That's the second solution that the world tells us to how we can solve the problem of death is don't just care so much. But then that leads us to the final solution that the world tries to throw at us to solve the problem of death. And this is the you're so selfish solution. This is an interesting solution because this is something that's pretty new. And it comes predominantly from these new radical atheists that are becoming so popular today in our day and age. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who's considered one of the most famous atheists in the world, who is also the New York Times bestselling author of The God Delusion, he says this. He said this in a speech in regard to how we should view death. Listen to what he says. We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they are never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I in our ordinariness that are here. We privileged few who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred. What is he saying? He's saying if you are upset about your impending death or specifically if you're upset at the death of a loved one, you are selfish. You are a whining baby. How dare you whine and complain about the fact that your loved one just passed away? You should be grateful of the fact that she or he had the opportunity to live and you had the opportunity to live. Because you know what? Life is like like Disney World. 
Not everyone gets to go. And you should be grateful for the fact that you had a chance to go, right? So stop whining, stop complaining, and just carry on, right? That's what Dawkins is saying. He's trying to solve this problem of death by trying to point the finger at us for being selfish in our sorrow of death. Instead, he says, be grateful and just live life. So these are the three common solutions that we see today in our culture that try to deal with the grief that's attached to the problem of death. But as we'll see in a moment, Paul says these problems are so insufficient because neither of them, none of them, deal with the actual problem of death itself. In fact, Paul elucidates for us why death is so problematic, which leads me to my next point, the unbearable pain of death. Let's read again our passage from verses 13 to 15 where he says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, you might have noticed Paul constantly referring to a group of people that he calls those who have fallen asleep. He says it multiple times in these verses that I just read. And you're probably wondering, who is he talking about? Who are these people that Paul is referring to as those who have, quote, fallen asleep? Well, in order to understand that, you have to know a little background behind this letter known as 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Thessalonica that was made up of people, Christians, who are very young in their faith. These are spiritually immature people, people who've recently converted from paganism to Christianity. These people are very young in their faith. They're very immature in their faith. But here's something else about these Christians. These Christians have suffered a lot because many of them have suffered loss. Many of their loved ones, siblings, parents, children have died, mostly due to persecution because of Christianity. And as a result, many of these Christians are filled with such sorrow, such grief, that they can't be comp- they cannot help but to ask their spiritual father, Paul, the man who converted many of them, to ask the question, Paul, is there anything that Christianity offers, any sort of solution that Christianity offers to this problem known as death? To which Paul then responds with these verses. But notice, notice how Paul speaks to the Thessalonians. Notice the tone behind these words as he's writing them out. He is not rebuking them, accusing them of being selfish when they're dealing with this problem of death. He is not being indifferent and cold as if he's implying that they're going to eventually get over it. Nor is he in any way minimizing their grief as if they're eventually going to get over it or that they can simply be detached. He doesn't do any of things. He doesn't offer any of these solutions that our world today gives us. What does he do? He gives the Thessalonians permission to grieve. Notice what he does not say in verse 13. He does not say, stop grieving, or you should not be grieving. Shame on you. No, what does he do? He says, you should grieve. You need to grieve. When someone you love, someone you cherish is taken away from you from death, you are to be sorrowful. You are to grieve. But just don't grieve as a person without hope. So you see, Paul recognizes and he gives permission and he says, it is appropriate for you, Christian, to grieve at the loss of your loved ones. You must because Paul, more than anyone else, is very aware of the unavoidable, unbearable pain that is attached to death, the separation that results from death. 
Let me show you what I mean. Let's get down to verse 17 where he says this. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now from this verse, Paul says something very, very profound. What is he saying? He's saying God desires to have a relationship with us, not simply as isolated individuals. No. God wants a relationship with us in the context of us being part of a community. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say so that I will always be with the Lord or that you, singular, will always be with the Lord, but that we will always be with the Lord together, right? Paul is saying that God's interest in you in terms of a love relationship is not simply as a loner or as an individual. God's interest in you in terms of a relationship is always in the context of you being part of a community, you being part of a collective, you being part of a family. Why? Because according to the Bible, God created us to be creatures that need relationships. Do you guys remember what God said to himself when he created the first and only human being, a man by the name of Adam in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis? What did God say to himself? He says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for the man to be alone, which is simply his, his other way of saying, I did not design human beings to live in isolation. I did not design human beings to have no human contact, human relationships, human community. And so as a result, what did he do? He created another human being. He created Eve, his wife, and he further commanded those two what? Make babies, lots of babies, be fruitful, multiply. Why? So that you can have more human beings to which you can be in relationship with. You see, the Bible teaches us that we are created by God to be communal beings. We are created to be relational beings. That is the essence of what it means to be human, which means what? It means if you're deprived of human relationships or if human relationships are severed because of death, you become less human. Death, the separation that's the result of death from you and your loved ones, you and your community, dehumanizes you. That's what Scripture teaches. Listen to how one theologian by the name of Philip Hughes puts it. He says this, quote, The creation of man as male and female together with the encouragement to be fruitful and multiply, shows that man was intended to be a communal being enjoying personal fellowship with his fellow humans. Therefore, his segregation from human fellowship diminishes his human potential within the created order. When death segregates you from those whom you love, those whom you cherish, you become dehumanized. You become less of what you're called to be by God. Do you guys know what it's like to be treated in an inhumane way or to be dehumanized by another person? What, is it, what kind of treatment does a person get when they are treated in a dehumanized way? They're treated like dirt. No, worse. They're treated like human excrement. They're treated like trash. Where the only thing that you're good for is to be thrown out or flushed down the toilet, right? That is what it means when a person is treated in such a way to where they are dehumanized. It's where a part of them is treated as if they have no value, no significance. They are disgustingly worthless is what it means to be treated in an inhumane way, to be treated as if you are being dehumanized. Okay? And Paul is saying that is what death does to us. Death dehumanizes us by dehumanizing, by taking value away from our precious relationships. If death was a person... 
and our relationship with those that we deeply love was another person, death would be spitting in the face of our relationships. That is what death does. Death takes these precious relationships that we think are so invaluable, irreplaceable, and basically treats it in utter mockery, in utter contempt, as if it's nothing but trash. Go back to that country song that I had up earlier. Do you see that one line up there? In spite of all the funeral songs, the birds will make their joyful sound. Can you just see the mockery behind that, right? You just lost someone so valuable. You lost a relationship that is priceless. And it's as if the universe says, so what? It's worthless, cosmically. So the birds are going to keep on singing. Imagine for a moment you're walking down a busy street in broad daylight holding your baby, this beautiful baby that you deeply love, surrounded by hundreds of people. And then out of nowhere, a crazy dude, a kidnapper, snatches your baby in front of everybody, and no one even looks up, even though you're crying out, screaming, blood-curdling cry for help. No one pays attention. No one looks at you. How would you feel at that moment in that situation? You would feel like people around you are saying your relationship to your child is so insignificant. It is like dung. It is trash. Not even worth recognizing. That is the unbearable pain of death. That is what makes death so painful because it treats this precious, irreplaceable relationship that you had with someone as if it's nothing more than something to be flushed down the toilet. And that's hard to accept. That's hard to believe. And here's what's so overwhelming. None of the three solutions that I mentioned in my first point undermines this issue. In fact, it even validates it. I mean, go back to those three solutions that I just mentioned. You shouldn't care so much, you're so selfish, or you'll get over it. These three solutions all share the same assumption in terms of how it views that relationship you lost because of death, which is that relationship in the big picture, not that important, not that significant, no big loss cosmically. And so it's going to keep on going. Life is just going to keep on going. The solution this world has to offer to us to the problem of death really does not address the pain that is latent in death itself, does it? And so we're left with this question. Is there an actual solution to the problem of death that actually recognizes this valuable relationship that we've had, this relationship that is now lost because of death? Paul says, yes, there is. And this leads me to my final point, the hope against death. Let's read verse 17, excuse me, verse 14 to 17 of our passage where Paul says this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians, and he wants to encourage all of us. That even though death does separate us from our loved ones, we don't have to despair. We don't have to grieve without hope. Why? Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, according to Paul, the universal problem of death has already been solved 2,000 years ago with an obscure man from Bethlehem who lived a perfect, flawless, moral life. 
died a cruel, humiliating death by the Romans, and yet three days later rose again from the dead. And it's because Jesus rose again from the dead, Paul is saying, you and I can have hope, even though we have lost this beautiful, irreplaceable, priceless relationship, we can have hope. Why? Let me explain. The Bible teaches us, hear me now, the Bible teaches us that death was never supposed to happen. Humanity was never supposed to suffer death, never. Because God, when he created us, intended for us to live forever, to never taste death, because he loves us. And he intended our fellowship with him to go on forever and ever and ever. And so the question becomes, why is there death then? If God loves us so much and he intended for us to never taste death, but to always be in fellowship with him forever and ever, why is there death? The short answer, because we want death. That's what the Bible would say. Or maybe a more accurate way to say it is we want something that inevitably leads to death. And that's sin. Sin. Romans 6.23, Paul writes, for the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, The outcome of sin is death. Death has come upon the human race because within the heart of every human being is a desire to sin or a desire to be your own authority, to be under no one else's authority but your own, which is simply another way of saying of wanting to be your own God. Or if I could put it this way, death was the result of man's refusal to accept that he is man because he wants to live as if he is God. Let me say that again. Death was the result of man's refusal to accept he is man because he wants to live as if he is God. Imagine for a moment a person who's never worked out in his entire life, utterly overweight, never lifts up a weight, decides to run the New York City Marathon. Let's just say some guy out of his arrogance and pride and self-deludedness thinks, I'm going to run the New York City Marathon. Even though I don't work out, Even though all I do is eat chips and watch TV all day, I can do it. Can you imagine the danger this man is in? Can you imagine the injury, the pain, or worse, the death that could be the result for his arrogant, pompous, self-inflated view of himself? Death has come upon the human race because mankind refused to accept their true nature. Just like that couch potato refused to accept his true nature. We have received death as the consequence of our sins. We try to think that we can be the masters of our own lives. That we can be our own deity. That we can be our own creator. Where we determine our destiny. Where we determine our own purpose. Where we determine our own strength and power. And all it does... It's lead to death. Separation from us and God and separation from us and our loved ones. But here's where we have good news. Because the gospel tells us that God, in merciful response to our rebellious stupidity, did the unthinkable. What did he do? God became a man, Jesus Christ, And he suffered the full penalty for all of our sins by dying on the cross as our scapegoat, as our substitute, taking our place so that we would be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, future, as Pastor James says. And everything we deserve, including being separated from God and separated from our loved ones, would no longer be a threat against us. 
That is the gospel. That is the good news. And that is what makes Easter so joyous. Look again at what Paul says in verse 16. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Peter, excuse me, Paul tells us that Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, which means one day he's going to come back, and if we're still alive, he's going to take us back up with him to heaven. But notice who's already there ahead of us. Who is already with Jesus? When he comes for us, if we're still alive in the second coming, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ, those who have died before us, is already with Christ. Do you realize what that means? It means if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if your loved one has Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, death cannot separate you from that person. The bond that you have with them can never be severed, at least not permanently. That is what Paul is saying. Why? Because unlike death that trivializes and mocks our relationship, God sees our relationship just like we see it. He sees it as priceless, and he sees it as worth saving. If you're here today investigating Christianity... And if you're here specifically because a loved one of yours, a sibling, a friend, a coworker, brought you to this church, I hope you can see that this message shows you how important your relationship is to that person who brought you here today. I hope you can see that. This is something that I know is a little bit uncomfortable for us, for talk, for us to talk about for those of you who are investigating Christianity. Because, you know, Christianity has a very negative view right now in our society. Our society does not look very highly to Christians, and they do not look very highly to the church. At best, people see the church as kind of like a cult that's trying to brainwash people and get all their money or something. But actually, for the matter of fact, your loved one brought you here not to brainwash you, but to show you how important your relationship to them is by offering you the only hope that is available for that relationship and getting the proper valuable recognition that it has by asking you to share with them faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe I can challenge you. This person who brought you here brought you here because they want you to share what is so important to them. They want you to share Christ. Would you consider claiming Christ, looking at Christ, and even making Christ your Lord and Savior. Because if you do, this bond that will inevitably be broken by death will only be a temporary one, and it will be forever sealed because of the bond of Christ that you share with them. Would you consider who Christ is, what he claimed to be, what he has done, So that not only would you have God forever, but that precious love, that relationship that you have with that Christian of yours would also be forever as well. But before I end, let me address those of you, my brothers and sisters, right now, fellow Christians. You know, many of you right now are going through a season of grief because you recently lost someone, or maybe not recently, or maybe... You're possibly losing someone right now 
due to the impending inevitability of death. It's painful, and you should grieve. It is appropriate. But can I encourage you, as painful as it is, to remember the latent hope that you have because of the Christ that you share with that person? You know, one of my favorite books that I have in my library, I actually have a lot of favorite books in my library, but one of my favorite books is a book written by Samuel Rutherford. He was a Puritan divine back in England many, many years ago, and he wrote tons of pastoral letters to people in his church. They called it a parish back then. And one of the recurring themes that his letters address is the problem of death. And I want to read to you a little snippet of a letter that he wrote to a woman who recently lost her mother to sickness and death. Because I can't say it any better. Listen to what he says to her. But what? Do you think her lost when she is but sleeping in the bosom of the Almighty? Think her not absent who is in such a friend's house. Is she lost to you who is found to Christ? If she were with a dear friend, although you should never see her again, your care for her would be but small. Oh, now, is she not with a dear friend? And gone higher upon a certain hope that ye shall in the resurrection see her again when, be ye sure, she shall neither be hectic nor consumed in body. But ye have to rejoice that when a part of you is on earth, a great part of you is glorified in heaven. Therefore, run your race with patience. Let God have his own and ask of him instead of your mother, which he hath taken from you, the mother of faith, which is patience. And in patience, possess your soul. Lift up your head. Ye do not know how near your redemption doth draw. Thus, recommending you to the Lord who is able to establish you, I rest your loving and affectionate friend in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, on this glorious Easter Sunday, we are also reminded of the reality that there is still a lot of grief among us because the things that we hold dear are but rubbish compared to the people that we hold dear, the people who are priceless, irreplaceable, these relationships that make us who we are, these relationships that make us human. Father, we know that the threat of death is always upon them. And we know that as futile as it is to grasp the water, it's futile to grasp onto our loved ones as if we could hold on to them forever away from the clenches of death. But, oh, Lord, we know that we have hope that in Jesus Christ, not only is our relationship with you forever sealed and unbreakable, but so are the ones to whom we deeply cherish. Father, death tries to mock these precious relationships that we have. They try, it tries to insult us and mock us by temporarily taking us away from those whom we love. But, oh, Lord, help us to always remember that when we are in Christ, when we share Christ with our beloved, not only are we ever secure in our status before you, but our love for our beloved ones is secure that not even death can rob us of, not even death could take away. Father, I pray for those among us here who are still grieving at the loss of someone who has gone ahead into the glory of your bosom. Father, would you be with our brothers and sisters who are grieving that loss? But Lord, I also pray for those among us here who do not know you, people who are precious in the eyes and hearts of those who brought them to this place. 
Father, would you speak into their hearts so that they would see the truth, that they would see your son as their God, as their Savior, as their Redeemer and friend, so that not only by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior would they be forever secure in a relationship with you, but even these relationships that have brought them here would be secured forevermore. Oh God, hear this prayer and may our hopes respond appropriately so that we can see death, the problem of death, as no problem at all. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings. <laughs>